0: Welcome to Crossbridge Brickle's weekly podcast. Whether you are listening to us for the first time or revisiting a previously heard message, thank you for listening and we hope that the time that you spend with us helps connect your life to the way of Jesus. Every week we gather in the south end of downtown Miami in the financial district of Brickle. If you're in Miami or coming to Miami to visit, make sure to join us Sunday nights at 5 o'clock at 1770 Brickle Avenue. Included with the podcast today, we want to provide online notes for you to follow along with the message through the Bible app, as well as our Spotify playlist to listen to our music played during our gathering on the weekends. All of this information is found in the description of this week's podcast. If you have any questions about Crossbridge, Jesus, or faith in general, we would love to hear from you, and the easiest way to connect with us is by emailing us at brickhole at crossbridgemiami.com, or send us a text to our text-in number at 305 305 Nine three zero seven zero zero six. Once again, thank you for tuning in, and now here's this week's message from Crossbridge Brickle. Starting
1: with verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found that I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he gives himself, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated.
2: How's everyone doing tonight? I uh, realized my son, was—he, if you he didn't know, he was giving affirmation in the prayer. He's affirming already God's grace. I love that. Well, I'm glad that uh, you are joining us this evening. Happy to be here. If you were with us last week, we know we kicked off a new series entitled Explore God, which is an exciting series because it's not happening just here, and it's not happening just at the other crossbridge campuses but it's actually a series that many churches all over Miami-Dade County have engaged in and partnered in to essentially send a message to our city and to the different communities in our city that we want to be recognized as a church and as many churches that invite people of all different uh, faith backgrounds with all different types of doubts with all different types of questions to come to church and to come into the church community. We say here at Crossbridge all the time that you can belong before you believe. And we mean that. And so we wanted to go through a series where we deal with some of the very pressing questions of faith that you have felt and wrestled through and maybe you currently still are. And one of the things that I wanna ensure that I say at the beginning is this. The questions that we're dealing with in this series, these four big questions of faith and life and meaning and God, are not only questions that people outside the church ask. Many of us are asking these very same questions, and we're continuing to. You see, God's direction for our life is that we would grow in surrender of our heart, of our soul, and of our mind and of our strength to worship and to praise Him, to love Him with all of that, and that takes bringing our questions and our doubts and our issues before Him. And so that's what we're doing. And if you were with us last week, you know that we kicked off with maybe the most pressing question, and that is, why would God allow pain and suffering? And one of the promises that I have made to you in this series is that we're going to engage and we're going to interact. And so I want to ask you, are you ready to interact tonight? Let's do it again. Are you ready to interact tonight? <laughs> Last week, so there were some haters in the room because I, I put a question out there that said, how would you answer this? Why would God allow pain and suffering? And there was, I think, 30 or so of you that texted in, and some of you were hating, throwing shade on me because after you said, you made up all those answers and you scripted it and made it look like you were reading, that's not true. That's not true. I read, a, I read everyone's verbatim. In fact, one person after told me that when I started reading, they said, that sounds a lot like mine. And then when I read the scripture first, they said, oh, no, that's mine. (laughs) So I hope tonight you engage because we're going to do it a little bit differently. Here's the big question for tonight. Check the screen. It is this. What is your biggest problem with Christianity? Really simple, really light, not a big deal at all. What is your biggest problem with Christianity? So pull out your phones, start texting in. You're like, I don't. I mean, it's, it's going to take a lot of text messages. That's okay. You can do as many as you want. You can write as much as you want. You can be short and sweet. Here's our promise to you, two promises. One is that I'm going to keep you anonymous in the sermon. I'm going to dissect a few of the questions live in the sermon at the end. But we're going to make a promise to you that if you text in your answer, that question, that we will follow up with you, that our leadership will follow up and either resource you with ways to um, work through that issue, that problem of Christianity, or to schedule time to meet with you and talk through it, and maybe provide an answer, or maybe just be a listening ear to work through your doubt. So that's our promise. So text in. Let me check and see if some of you are texting in, because this is real. This is not Fake. As some of you, it's not fake news. Some of you thought it was fake news. It's not. It's real. And I'm going to check and see right now. So tonight, our question is, is Christianity too narrow? That's the big question. Is it too narrow? Is it too exclusive? We do have some. Let me just read one to so you guys, So for, this is for the haters, okay? Here's the first one. Here's the first one that came in. The idea that some people... We'll go to hell. I don't know how to, wow, okay, we're gonna go right in. The idea that some people go to hell, I don't know how to explain that to others. Okay, well, we're gonna save that for the end of the sermon. Not gonna jump into that now, possibly address it. Thank you, this is a friend of mine that sent that in. (laughs) Grateful, grateful. But tonight we're dealing with the question of, is Christianity too narrow? And some of your problems with Christianity may be addressed in the topic at hand? Is it too exclusive? And we're looking at the passage of Acts chapter 17. Here's what's taking place in the passage. The Apostle Paul has arrived in Athens, the large cosmopolitan city of Athens, a city that is a mecca for many things, but it is certainly a mecca for spirituality, for religion, for for philosophy. Some of the great philosophers in the history of the world stem from Athens. And there was a place in Athens called Areopagus, or also known as Mars Hill. It was literally on a hill. It was a large building, almost temple-like in how it looked, and it was the hub for all different things in the city. It was where the court was, decisions were made there, and this is where the philosophers and the religious leaders went to debate and to discuss spirituality, faith, God, religion, all of these things as well. And so this is a really important city because it has influence in the whole region and Paul arrives in the city and when he's there, it says that his spirit is provoked. And he's provoked because he sees a city full of idols because there are temples all over Athens, there are idols all over Athens. It is a city of many different religions Many different belief systems, as large cosmopolitan cities typically are. And so because the the Apostle Paul is provoked in his spirit, he begins to go around the city and share what is regarded as a strange message. He shares this message of Jesus, of his life, his death, and his resurrection, He goes to the synagogue because the apostle Paul is a Jew and he begins there and he begins to share this message in the the synagogue with the Jewish religious leaders in the city. Then he goes to the marketplace and he shares with business leaders and he starts a stir in the city to where the philosophers take notice. And they literally say, who is this man sharing this strange teaching? And they want to know more. They want to debate with him. And so they find Paul, and they invite him to come to the Europagus, to the Mecca, to the hub, to where all the debate is, where all the philosophers and the poets and the religious leaders gather, and to share this strange message. Now, we're told that there's two types of philosophers that begin to engage with him, and it's helpful for you to know what exactly they believe. The first was Epicurean philosophers, and the second was Stoic. So, Epicurean philosophers are like modern-day agnostics. So, if you have considered yourself an agnostic, if you are an agnostic, you would be in line with Epicureans, which essentially said, we don't know if God exists, maybe God exists, maybe God doesn't exist, but what we do know is that life should be guided by reason. Reason should guide the trajectory of your life. This is the person that says, I'm not sure about God, but science and reason is how I live my life and what I dictate is true. And then you have the Stoics. The Stoics would be like New Age. They would be pantheist. Some would believe in different forms and different shapes of spirituality, but their belief was that God was in everything, and the goal of life is to find harmony and to find balance. So you have. Pantheist, New Age, God in everything. Then you have, we don't know if God exists. And then there's a whole host of other religions as well in the city. And the Apostle Paul is here around all of them in the Europagus, and he's invited to share. And he stands up in verse 22 through 23, and he says this standing in the midst of the Europagus, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious because everyone was very sincere. In their belief system, the Stoics, the Epicureans, all of the others, very sincere in their belief system. I perceive that in every way you're very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. All these different idols, temples. And I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you as known. It's interesting how the Apostle Paul starts his dialogue with these people, with these leaders. He first, he says, I I notice you're very religious, that I've talked with some of your Epicurean philosophers and some of the Stoic philosophers and others in the city, and the different forms of religion and spirituality everyone takes very seriously. You're very sincere. And I've also noticed that there's an undercurrent in the city that everybody subscribes to, and that is... That every religion is basically the same. That truth is kind of a construct and you should follow your truth with sincerity, but you should not push it on other people. So much so that in the city they say, listen, we don't know everything. There's probably another God out there. So let's make an altar. And this is for the unknown God, the one that we have not met, that we don't know, that we've not heard anything about. The apostle Paul is about to share with them who this unknown God is, and he's going to share that this is the true and living God. But he starts kind of diagnosing the city and diagnosing these people and how they believe. You see, I like to think that Athens was the original city that had the coexist bumper sticker. They were on the chariots. Everyone had the coexist bumper sticker. Everyone's getting along. You believe your truth, your truth, my truth, with sincerity. Don't push on other people. And then you will be living a successful and meaningful spiritual life. Does that sound familiar? That type of culture? (laughs) It's because that's our culture, right? Most people believe that all religions are basically the same thing. And that what really matters is that you follow your particular religion, your particular belief system, your particular brand of spirituality with sincerity. Your passion for it. But you got to coexist. Don't push your truth on other people. That's your truth. Someone else's contradictory truth is their truth. And so it is relative in terms of what is true, more of a construct. It makes sense that Athens feels a lot like Miami and America because Athens was the very first democracy in the history of the world. And so much of our civilization in our country stems from Athenian culture. And so we have a deep connection with what's taking place here. This theory I I like to call uh, the mountaintop theory. And the mountaintop theory goes like this. There is a God or some type of divinity, and every religion is on a different path towards the same God, towards the same destination, towards the same end. They look different, but as long as you follow your path with sincerity then you will all arrive at the same place. That's why we need to all coexist. This statement that all religions are basically the same thing is believed by 49% of Americans. There was a Barna study in 2017 that surveyed the landscape of the country and 49% of American adults believe that all religions are basically the same thing and they end at the same destination. What really matters, you follow it with sincerity. I was thinking of this this week to maybe help think through the mountaintop theory and um, how it plays out logically. So imagine if I told you that this week I watched five movies, okay? I watched Parasite because it won Best Picture. I watched 1917 because I like war movies. I watched Harry Potter, all of them, because I'm a nerd. I watched Alice in Wonderland for nostalgia, and I watched Bird Box to get a little scared, you know? So I watched all these movies throughout the week, and I really liked the movies, and I enjoyed them, and then I, I looked at you, and I said, I have an insight. All of these movies are basically the same story. They're the same genre. At the basis, at the foundation of all of them, they're the exact same, so there must be a common writer and a common director, and you would either think one of two things. You would think, wow, tell me more how is Bird Box like Harry Potter? (laughs) And I would try to explain to you. Or you would think, that is completely illogical. 1917 is nothing like Alice in Wonderland. And Bird Box is nothing like Harry Potter and Parasite is like none of them. And so... That makes no sense. But I would say, no, listen, but I'm very serious about this. I'm very passionate about it. I'm very sincere that this is what I believe and this is what I believe is true. And you may say to me, that's great. I'm glad that you're passionate. I'm glad that you're sincere. But just because you're sincere doesn't make it true. You see, the problem with the mountaintop theory is that it elevates sincerity of belief and sincerity of devotion to whatever belief you have and equates that with truth, The problem is that's not how life works and that's not actually how we determine what is true because ideas have consequences and you can't just say, well, I believe this very seriously even if the consequence is negative or illogical or untrue. Essentially, if you're going to believe the mountaintop theory that all religions are basically the same thing and every path is going towards that direction, you have to be willing to say, that someone who commits horrific violence in the name of religion is going to arrive at the same place as Mother Teresa who give, gave her life for orphans in India. Because they were both very sincere in their faith. They believe it deeply, passionately. You see, it begins to break down a little bit when you think through the mountaintop theory. And it breaks down even more when you look at what is being claimed, the very the details of this assertion that all religions are basically the same and end at the same place. Because in every religion, there are different gods being spoken about. So you have some religions that are monotheistic, Islam, Islam. Judaism, Christianity, believe in one God. And even there's differentiation in there because Christianity believes in a God who is triune, three in one. One essence, three persons. And then you have religions that believe in many gods, millions of gods, like Hinduism. And then you have Buddhism that doesn't believe in God at all. So all these paths with very different visions and beliefs in the nature of God have to somehow all be arriving at the same place. And then you have very different Specifics of who God is. So, some religions believe that God is personal, that He's involved in His creation, that He is the painter who painted the painting that is our existence. And maybe He painted it and now He's stepped back and He's removed, or maybe He's painted it and He's still involved in His creation. But then there's another form of belief and religion that says, no, God is not the painter who paints the painting, God is the painting. He is the energy. He is the universe. He is a force. He is not personal at all. He is completely impersonal. And then you have some religions that say God is good and holy and righteous. And so when you experience something good, love and kindness and compassion, that is pointing you to the nature of who God is. And anything evil is the opposite of God. It is a removal of God from the equation. But then there are other belief systems like pantheism and much of new age that believes that God is not good or evil, that good and evil are social constructs that we create. They're two sides of the same coin. They're varying degrees of each other. And so that you may say that cancer is bad and the surgeon who kills the cancer in a person is good. But if you take a different point of view, I may say that the surgeon is bad who killed the cancer. That is a very different view of God and of faith, and life, and spirituality, and morality, then God is good. You see all the differences here. The paths are different. Some people say that you have to work out your karma, and you have to begin to pay for the sins of your life in the past lives in order to reach enlightenment. Other religions say you got to follow these commandments and perform for God. Other religions say you got to follow these five pillars and surrender your life to them. And then Christianity says that you need to receive the grace of God through faith in Christ. It has nothing to do with your moral performance at all. There are different visions of what is at the top of the mountain. Hinduism says you have to stop the cycle of reincarnation, of birth and death, and then rebirth and reach enlightenment. Other religions have a version of of heaven, but they're all vastly different. You see, if you're going to come to the place to where you're going to believe that all religions are basically the same thing and they're different paths to the same end, then you have to be okay with believing that whatever is there, God, this divine essence or being, is a contradiction. It's a complete contradiction. You have to be okay with saying that God created the world He's the prime mover. He created the world. Therefore, he has a purpose for the world. But he has allowed his creation to speak of him or her or itself or whatever you believe in completely contradictory ways. That he's okay with being labeled millions of gods or impersonal or personal or in everything or reincarnation, or karma, or law, or grace, and all of these things are okay. You see, that's an illogical God. It's a God who is a contradiction, and it doesn't hold a lot of weight. So the Apostle Paul here, he's writing, and he begins to diagnose this. He says, I see that you're very religious. I see that you're very sincere, and that you really want to coexist with all of these gods and believe that All religions are essentially the same thing. And as long as you're sincere and you're religious, that's what matters. And then he says, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's a very bold statement he makes. What I proclaim to you is what you've been looking for, is what you've been missing. And so he says this in verse 24 through 28. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's here combating and expanding the, the nature and the beliefs that are in the room. He's combating them and he's expanding them. The first thing he says here is that God is the creator of all things, that he's not found in temples, he's the creator of heaven and earth, and that he's not served by human hands. He's saying that God is creator, that God is transcendent, that God is the painter who paints the painting. The first thing to acknowledge, and so he's affirming some in the room, expanding upon that, and then he's also combating some other positions that God is in everything, and he is the painting, not the painter. Then he goes on, and he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. He says, God is the creator of all, and God equalizes all people. Now, this was a very radical statement to the Greeks. You see, the Greeks were, how do I put this? They were racist. So most simple way of explaining that culture. They believed that Greeks were superior to every other race. Literally, they would if you were not a Greek, they would call you a barbarian. You're either Greek or you're savage. They had racial superiority. And the Apostle Paul says that God is the creator of all. He is transcendent. He is the painter that paints the painting of the existence. And he equalizes all people because from one man comes all mankind. Everyone is deserving of dignity and respect because they are all made in the image of God. This is a very strong Judeo Christian held belief, the Imago Dei, the image of God. Radical. God is creator of all, and he equalizes all people. And then he says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Though he is transcendent and creator, and removed. He's actually personal. He's actually present. And he says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. God is the creator of all. He equalizes all people, but God is also the source of life. He is the source of everything. In him, you live and you move and you have your being. You see, he's expanding and also combating the belief that God is in everything and he's challenging those that think that maybe God doesn't exist or God is so far removed that he's not present at all in our existence. And he says, no, God is the creator. He equalizes all people. But, and he is also the source of life and breath and everything in it. But not the way that you think. In the way that he comes into his creation. And he is the support and the author of life. And he even quotes one of the poets to prove his point, one of the pantheistic poets it says that God is in everything, and he says, to quote one of your poets, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul continues on in verse 29, and he says, therefore, being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So because God is creator and he equalizes all people and he is the source of life and in him we live and move and have our being, we should not think that God is found in a temple or in idol or in gold or in silver or in anything made by human art or imagination. Here's where he turns the corner. He's going to say that anything that is created by man alone, by man's imagination and their creativity, is not speaking about God. He's essentially looking at the room and saying, everything that you believe, that you have thought about as philosophers, and you've been dreaming up, and you've been working through, and you've been writing, none of it is speaking about truth. Because God is not found through human imagination. But he says in verse 27 that God is actually desiring of all people to come to him. He says that God seeks that they should seek God and perhaps find their way towards him or feel their way towards him and find him. So there's a picture being painted here with the question, is Christianity too narrow? Is it too exclusive? The Apostle Paul begins when he speaks to a crowd that probably would have had the same assertion if they really understood what Paul was saying. And he says, Christianity is the most inclusive faith. Christianity believes in a God who is a creator of all, who equalizes all people, who is the author of life and breath and everything, that in him you have your being, that you are the offspring of God and that he invites you to find your way to him and to even feel your way to him. But he is not found through human imagination or art and he is not found certainly in a statue or in a temple. That it is the most inclusive faith and religion in the world and that is still true today. It will always be true. Christianity is the most wide, and it is the most inclusive religion in the world. I want to show you a couple maps of some other religions. Can you put up the first one? So this is Islam. You can see uh, where it is centered in the world, mostly Africa and the Middle East, and then some in Southeast Asia. And you can see the population. It's kind of small, but it goes from 0% all the way up to 100% in some of these regions, as we know. Let's go to the next one. This is Hinduism. Hinduism is majority found in India and some of the surrounding regions. And then there are a few little islands and then also over in South America, there are Indians um, that have uh, moved there over the years through immigration and other reasons. So very kind of selective areas. let's do the next one. This is Buddhism. Buddhism is primarily in Southeast Asia. And obviously in China as well and some of those other regions, zero to 100%. Now let's go to Christianity. Christianity is in every single country in the entire world. It is the most inclusive religion in the entire world because it has no ethnicity. It has no social class. Does it doesn't have a certain way that you have to look? There are no markers that you have to agree to or follow to to be labeled a Christian. There's a very subtle difference between this map and every other map. Certainly, there are areas where there are less Christians than others. But if you notice, every other map started with zero and it went up to 100% because every other religion in the world has countries where there are zero people that follow that religion because maybe they don't meet the ethnic Qualification. maybe they're unwilling to follow some of the cultural norms and customs, maybe that it just doesn't connect with that lifestyle and environment there. You would expect that from religions that are made by the imagination of man, that there would be certain other cultures and environments where how that was formed by the imagination of men and women, that that religion wouldn't transfer over very well. But here, you notice that the scale starts with one. One to seven percent. doesn't start with zero because there is not a country in the entire world where there's not a Christian. There's not a church. There's not a sermon being preached. Not one. It is the most inclusive religion in the entire world because its message is that God is personal and is transcendent and is engaged in his creation. And all people are made in the image of God And you are invited to find or feel your way to him and to find that he is, in fact, the source of life. It's the most inclusive religion in the world, but it is also exclusive. It is narrow. And we have to say that because it's true. It is also exclusive. The Apostle Paul closes his dialogue or his message In the Europagus with this. Notice the shift. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's inclusive and exclusive. To repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It is inclusive and wide, but it is narrow and it is exclusive because the message of Christianity is that there is one God at the top of the mountain and there is one path to that God and it is only through faith in Jesus Christ, the man appointed who died on the cross for sin but was raised from the dead. That is an exclusive claim, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. And you may be thinking... I know, that's my problem, that's exactly my problem. The exclusive, narrow nature to claim that Jesus is the only way. And there's a question that you have to work through if you feel that way. And it's an important question to ask. If you have a problem with the exclusivity and the narrow nature of the Christian message, you have to ask yourself, Is God the authority? Does He have the authority to determine the pathway to Him? I just found out about a secret club in Disneyland called Club 33. How many of you know about this? Some of you are going to have your mind blown, okay? There are secret clubs in Walt Disney in all of their parks. The first one is in Disneyland in California. It's called Club 33. It's on the second level in the French Quarter, it's hidden and it is super exclusive and narrow. There's a 14-year waiting list, and in order to join the membership is a cool $100,000. Now, Disney has every right to have this exclusive Club 33. I would have called it Club 100, you know, for the 100,000. They have every right to have this club to set the rules because it's their park. They have the authority over their park and the attractions and the environments and the clubs that you can join. And you may feel like that is ridiculous, but they have the right and the authority. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, does God have the authority to determine the path to him? Does he have the right? If he's the creator of the universe and all that is in existence, certainly he does have the right to determine the pathway to him. But you may still be thinking, Yes, I agree with that. However, I do not think that Christianity has the monopoly on truth. That's my problem. I think that's the core of this question. Of all religions are basically the same. They're all different paths to God. It all stems down to when you look at the Christian message, you think to yourself, I do not think that Christians have the full picture of truth. They may have truth, but I think other religions do too. This is a very long-held belief. It goes back to an Indian parable called the elephant parable or a story. I don't know what it's called. It goes like this. Imagine there's a king, and the king gets an elephant. And the king has the elephant in the room, and he has six servants. They're blind servants, and he brings them in, and he asks them to touch what is in front of them. He moves them around the elephant. They're blind. They don't know what's in the room. It's a very quiet elephant, too. That's an important part of the story. And so one grabs the trunk and says, I'm, "I'm." and he says, what are you holding? What are you touching? This is a snake. One grabs the ear. This is a fan. It's a lar- or Maybe it's a large leaf from a tree. One grabs the leg. This is a stump. And the parable is to communicate that every religion and every belief has a part of truth, but they don't see the whole picture. They're holding the, the leg or the ear or the nose. And so every religion is basically the same because they all have a part of the truth, but not all of it. That is a very attractive belief. It sounds very open minded, it sounds very tolerant, but here's the problem it is very arrogant and very exclusive because you're essentially saying, I am the king. Every religion in the world only sees a part of the truth, but I see all of it. I see the whole elephant. I see who God is. I see his nature. I see the divinity. I see all of it. And I'm telling you, every religion is a different portion. You see, here's the crux of this question. Is Christianity too exclusive? Is too narrow? Every single belief statement on faith, on God, on divinity, every one of them is is exclusive. Everyone. Every one whether you believe that God is the Muslim version of God or the Christian version of God or the Hindu version of gods or you follow Buddhism or you don't believe in God at all, they are all narrow, exclusive claims. And so at the end of the day, when we deal with this question, we just have to say, you know what? We have to all put our cards on the table. We all believe narrow, exclusive truth claims about reality and about existence and about God or lack thereof. We all hold exclusive claims. The question is, which one's the right one? Which one is true? And see, the beauty of Christianity is that it is not founded on human imagination. It is not founded on what you can create or you can feel comforted by your own mind. It is founded on history. It is founded on history. And this is the beauty of our faith it is exclusive, but it is in fact beautiful. You see, narrow can be beautiful when it is clear and concise and attainable. The truth of Christianity is narrow, but grace is wide. You see, grace is wide. That is the message of Jesus. That is the Christian message: is that it is inclusive of all people. That grace is wide and it invites all people in. That God desires all people to come, but there is an exclusive claim. That to come to the Father, to come to God, to come to realize and to experience that God is in fact the source of life and everything in it, that you have your being in him, is to believe in the one appointed, Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead. Listen to this. I'll close with First Timothy 2, 4 through 6. It says, God who desires all people to be saved And to come to the knowledge of the truth, it's wide grace, but it is narrow, the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for many. That is a very clear picture of the Christian message, that God desires all people to come, that grace is wide, but truth is narrow. We come through Christ who gave his life as a ransom for many. And when they heard this in Athens, and maybe when you hear this tonight or when you share this with a friend, you're going to see one of two responses. Here's what happens in verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. I want to know more. I want to hear more. Well, what I'm going to do, because some could say I was feeling myself and I went a little long. I'm going to take, well, we got a lot of questions. I'm going to take uh, two questions and briefly address them that that came in. They're going to be random. Uh, The first question that came in by a dear friend of mine is going to be tabled because that will take, we'll be here for a while, but I'll be up here at the end of the service as well as Pastor Tommy would love to talk with you and walk through this, and we will connect. So I'm going to just pick a random one. Okay. Wow, this is good. Okay, you guys ready? My biggest beef, I like that word. should have changed that. My biggest beef with Christianity is probably the people who use God's name to justify xenophobia and hatred. Okay, it's a light a little light action on that one. Um, that is a problem that I have with Christianity as well. I, I think maybe the way that others say it as well, and I saw another one in here that was saying it in a similar way, is that their biggest problem with Christianity is the hypocrisy of Christians is that they say one thing, they believe a message that is wide and is about God's grace of inviting all people in, but then they use God and they use faith and maybe even they use scripture to be hateful towards people, to put people down and to separate people, that they don't actually live out that God equalizes all people. I have that same problem with Christianity and I don't think that there's an answer that solves that problem. Um, there are some you know, nice uh, slogans and quotes that people have said. But at the end of the day, I think that we have to acknowledge that that is a problem in Christianity, but it is an expected problem. It's an expected problem because Christianity invites all people with all type of sin and all type of baggage and all type of prejudice and all type of issues that stem in many different arenas. And the pathway of salvation and the pathway of the life of a Christian after coming to faith in Christ is one of what we call sanctification. It's becoming more and more like Jesus each and every day. And that's a long process And sometimes it takes a long time to rid out some of the hatred and some of the scars and some of the wounds and some of the prejudice and some of the bigotry. And I think that that actually points to the beauty of the Christian message. The hypocrisy of God's people actually points to the beauty of who God is, that he actually invites hypocrites to himself. In fact, it requires that we are hypocrites. Because grace is wide and the truth The message of Jesus is that our faith is not determined by our moral performance or by how well we treat other people, though we should love people. It's determined by Christ and what he's done for us. And so I have that same problem. I'm going to pick one more, and if it's too long, I won't go. Okay, here's. Clicked on it. Okay, that's a long one. That was a novel. Sorry. All right. This and the last one is it says this. Sometimes with here's my problem. Sometimes with the way we practice it, I get a little bored and feel guilty when secular things are fun. That is fabulous. <laughs> Secondly, I wish God would make my life better in quotes than non believers, so it would make it easier for me to witness to others. Sounds silly when I write it out, and I know that it's not the point, but sometimes I think that way. That's, that's really honest and really good. Let me wrap that up again. He says, my biggest problem is really stemming from himself. That sometimes you get bored and you get, you know, Kind of lazy in your faith and you feel guilty about that and engaging in stuff that you know you shouldn't is fun and so that piles on the guilt and then it says i wish god would sometimes make my life better than non-believers so then i could say hey listen look at my life don't you want this life and then i understand that and i think that that is a a problem or a struggle that many people feel because we are inundated oftentimes especially in the west with God is going to make your life better and God is gonna give you blessings and God's gonna give you breakthrough and God's gonna, he's gonna you know, come behind all of the things that you need and he's gonna make your life much better. And then we struggle with running after things that we shouldn't and it makes our life worse and then God, and so we feel that tension and I think God's, in, God's intention is in fact to bring flourishing and joy and happiness to your life but we're also promised that we're gonna carry a cross in this life. And sometimes we carry a cross and we carry our suffering for a long time and it feels like God has abandoned us. And the promise in scripture is that God is in fact, we talked about this last week, that God is in fact working all things in your life for good, even when you can't see them. But in the midst of it, he is near. In fact, God is most near to you when he's pruning your life. There's an example that Jesus shares where he says that God is the vine dresser and we are the branches and he cuts away the dead branches. And if you know anything about vines, which I don't, but I've Googled it, in order for them to flourish, you have to cut away the dead branches so new life can grow. And God sometimes cuts things out of our life so that we can flourish and grow. But here's the question. When is God most near to you? When he's cutting when he's cutting out the dead branches. So those are two awesome questions. We're gonna deal with more, and I appreciate you guys sending these in. It's gonna be fun. We got another one next week, but let me pray for us, and we'll close our service with coming to the Lord's table and singing a song of God's grace. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the time to just spend here as your people Under the authority of your word to be challenged, pray that we would be open to receive your truth, to be transformed, that you would give us insight into the questions and problems that we have, that you would surround us with people that would listen to us, and that you would also make us bold, as the Apostle Paul was, to share the grace of God with others that is wide, but the truth that is narrow so that many would come to see how beautiful and how wonderful you are. So God, we pray that tonight would be encouraging, that it would be refining, and that you would use this as a launching pad to go into community groups, to go into environments this week, to begin to be shaped and molded by your gospel, Jesus. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.